This evening's talk is about kama or karma in Pali or in Sanskrit. And beginning with some words from the Buddha, all beings are owners of their kama, heirs of their kama, born of their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. And beginning by saying something that I've found to be very helpful and supportive throughout the various phases and stages of my practice over the years, as I began to connect with and more deeply understand the teaching of Kama. And this is that this teaching, the teaching about Kama, offers and brings to an ever clearer light a path of practice that isn't based on fear of or belief in any higher authority, but rather founded on a clear understanding of the natural law of cause and effect as it relates to all things, as it relates to all phenomena, and particularly as it relates to human behavior. Consequently, the the teaching on kama is not so much something to be believed in as it is to be understood as we come to see and know it in operation. As a Western woman, culturally, from the West, uh, I think that I can safely say this for most of us, uh, women and men, who've been primarily brought up and conditioned in Western-oriented culture, that consequently then it turns out that kama is not some unreachable or some strange concept. The teaching, relevancy, and understanding of kama, which is one of Buddhism's central themes, is really quite accessible and actually even quite ordinary. Maybe even so ordinary that somehow it may elude our complicated minds. So, what is kama? Etymologically, or the root word, the root of the word kama is action or deed. In the context of the Dhamma, it's defined more specifically and clearly as action based on intention. Another way of looking at and understanding this is action based on motivation. In English, the word motivation has a somewhat uh, deeper or maybe subtler meaning than intention. 
the motivation in the mind behind or underneath or preceding the intention. Motivation or intention is what leads to deeds willfully done, deeds done through volition. In the Buddhist teaching, kama refers only to intentional or volitional action, intentional or willful action. Uh, That's what it refers to, is that kind of action. Intentional or willful action is the mental factor responsible for kama. So, kama is intention, which includes will, choice, and decision. The mental impetus, which leads to actions, both creative and destructive actions. This is really the essence of kama. And some words from the Buddha. Monks, it is intention, I say, that is kama. Having willed, we create kama through body, speech, and mind. There are two sorts of volitional action that uh, come from two flavors of motivation or two flavors of intention. Wholesome motivation, wholesome intention leads us to choose to act or speak in a wholesome way. And unwholesome uh, motivation or unwholesome intention leads us to decide to act or speak in an unwholesome way. So we could say wholesome intention or motivation is wholesome kama, and unwholesome intention is unwholesome kama. Kama is a law of nature, the way of things, the law of cause and effect, cause and result. So just like a rubber ball that's thrown against a wall bounces back, Skillful, unskillful, or neutral intention and action generates inevitable consequences. The law is, or the law of karma, is one of the fundamental natural laws through which we actually create vastly different realities. As we experientially through our own direct, immediate experience, begin to understand the law of kama, how these consequences are created, combined, and intensified throughout our life becomes clarified, more and more clarified. His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, it's more important to understand kama than emptiness. Something that I've discovered by way of my own deep practice to be a quite amazing and illuminating is that in the context of the teachings and in our practice of the Dhamma, intention has a much subtler meaning than it commonly has in the way that it's used and understood in everyday English. I think of most of us... Um, usually think of intention 
as the link between internal thought and its resultant external actions. So, for example, things like, I did that intentionally, or you might say to somebody, is that really what you meant to say? The Buddhist teaching tells us that all actions, speech, and all thoughts, no matter how fleeting, as well as the responses of the mind, the responses of the heart, to the various experiences and sensations received through each of the six sense doors, the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, that all of this, without exception, contains elements of intention. This means that the mind subtly, or sometimes not so subtly, volitionally or willfully chooses objects of awareness and reaps the karmic fruit of these choices. Intention is the factor which leads the mind to turn towards or turn away from various potential objects of awareness. Intention is the factor which leads the mind, the heart, to proceed or not proceed in any particular direction. So from this perspective, it's intention that guides or intention that governs how the mind, how the heart responds to stimuli. As our practice deepens, we begin to see and to know more and more clearly through our own direct experience that intention is really the force that organizes the movements of the mind which means that intention is a primary aspect of what determines the states, the states of mind that are experienced by the mind, the heart. The Buddha spoke many times about the fact that the the motivation or the intention that leads to action is the mental impetus that is the determinant of our karmic fruit. In other words, the motivation or the intention that leads to action is what determines the result of our action. Basically, this is the teaching of cause and effect, cause and result. Inherent in each intention or motive in the mind, in the heart, no matter how subtle, is an energy that's powerful enough to bring about some subsequent result. It's possible to actually experience this process occurring when mindfulness is accompanied by a very clear, very deep and strong momentary concentration. And even it's possible to experience, even on a subtler level, when clear, 
strong mindfulness is accompanied by a very well-developed access concentration. So, in light of this, consider that even just one tiny thought that might not even be a very particularly important thought, it isn't without consequence. It will result in at least a tiny speck of kama that's added to the stream of conditions which shape one's mental activity. If this speck is practiced repeatedly, over and over again in the mind, or expressed repeatedly through external expression in speech or with actions, the result, the karmic result, is strengthened in the form of one's character traits and even through one's bodily makeup, such as various physical expressions and even physical features as well as in the form of our various verbal and active responses or reactions in relationship to the outer world. Even the responses and the reactions that come to us from external sources can sometimes show up in similar repetitive ways and be strengthened when we're unaware, when we're really not mindful and are repeatedly, repeatedly acting out or practicing, we could say, the specks of mental kama that add to the stream of conditions that shape our mental activity. There's a Tibetan teaching that says something like, everything rests on the tip of motivation. In Theravada Buddhism, we might say, everything rests on the tip of intention. (coughs) A painful or destructive kama, intention, doesn't really have to be on a gross level for it to be effective. I remember once many years ago, when I was sitting a retreat, I got a note up on the yogi noteboard <clears throat> that really did not please me at all. And so I proceeded to angrily tear up the piece of paper that the note was written on. And even though the piece of paper itself uh, had absolutely no importance in and of itself, the action certainly did have some effect on the quality of my mind, the quality of my heart. And in contrast to this, more recently, um, I was cleaning off and sorting out my desk at home, and with a quite a neutral state of mind, I simply threw away some scraps of paper. With that action, producing a very different effect on the quality of the mind the quality of the heart. If we repeatedly act out of angry intention, the effects of this type of accumulation will become clearer and clearer and may develop to a more and more significant level. 
in the chain of or the wheel of dependent origination or what is sometimes called the wheel of interdependent arising which is the process of how things come to be um, how they are and then cease to be kama specifically in terms of intention is called the agent which fashions the mind in light of this discussion I'd like to read some words from the Buddhist uh, scholar uh, Thai Buddhist scholar Venerable Paiuto This is from his book, Good, Evil, and Beyond, Kama in the Buddhist Teaching. Consider the specks of dusts, dust which come floating unnoticed into a room. There isn't one speck which is void of consequence. It's the same for the mind. But the weight of that consequence, in addition to being dependent on the amount of mental dust, is also related to the quality of the mind. For instance, specks of dust which alight on a road surface have to be of a very large quantity before the road will seem to be dirty. Specks of dust which alight onto a floor, although of a much smaller quantity, may make the floor seem dirtier than the road. A smaller amount of dust accumulating on a tabletop will seem dirty enough to cause irritation. An even smaller amount alighting on a mirror will seem dirty and will interfere with its functioning. A tiny speck of dust on a spectacle lens is perceptible and can impair vision. In the same way, motivation or intention, no matter how small, is not void of fruit. As the Buddha said, all kama, whether wholesome or unwholesome, bears fruit. There's no kama, no matter how small, which is void of fruit. In the same way, the mind has varying levels of refinement or clarity, depending on accumulated kama. As long as the mind is being used on a coarse level, no problem may be apparent. But if it is necessary for us, if it is necessary to us, excuse me, But if it is necessary for us to use the mind on a refined level, previous unskillful kama, even on a minor scale, can become, may become an obstacle. There's a wonderful selection of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called Connected Discourses in the Woods, uh, a few of which I offered in an earlier Dhamma talk uh, during this retreat. And these are uh, suttas where various woodland-dwelling devas approach and speak to certain monks who are practicing in those same woodland thickets. And so I'd like to share again just a part of one of these same short dialogues 
as an illustration regarding uh, what we're exploring together this evening. And this is the sutta called The Thief of Scent. And the devas speaking to the monk. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the monk, the bhikkhu, responds, I do not take, I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds to the monk, When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it is to you I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere's hair tip of evil, evil appears as big as a cloud. The understanding that various experiences of stress, of suffering, and the experience of ease are the result of our kama, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed, right here and now, in this lifetime, and on back and back and back. This is kama. This is our karma. We're born, we spring out of the womb of karma. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we are the undeniable heirs of our karma. So, for instance, just as soon as we've spoken words or performed any action, and I did mention this the other day, We've totally lost control over it. And yet, it remains with us. And in some way, inevitably returns to us as what could be called our due inheritance. So, what does this mean? We could say that everything that happens and the resultant ease or dis-ease in our mind that this ease or this dis-ease is the outcome, meaning the response or the reaction of our own mind's relationship to all of the internal and external happenings that we experience is what brings ease or dis-ease. In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this life in any given moment, is due to our own mind. Meaning our motivations, our intentions, and the consequent actions. Meaning our wholesome responses or unwholesome reactions to internal and external phenomena. Our ease and happiness or dis-ease and suffering 
is due to the motivations, intentions, and subsequent actions, the deeds of our mind, body, and speech, not due to our wishes, not due to our hopes and our dreams for ourselves, and not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic or seemingly mysterious, strange, or foreign world. And again, His Holiness the Dalai Lama tells us, happiness is not something ready-made. It comes from your own actions. As awakening beings, our practice continues to develop our capacity to see the truth of how things occur, how things unfold, and to see their nature. As this comes clearer and clearer through our direct experience with our own body-mind continuum, we quite naturally find that the intentions, the motivations in the mind, more and more lead to wholesome responses, creative choices, rather than to unwholesome, reactive, and destructive choices. In its powerful potential to bring good or bad results, kama can be compared to food. Some foods are good, bringing and promoting health when we eat them, and we eat them at the right time and in the, in the right amount. And some foods are harmful and bring disease and may even be poisonous to us, maybe even deadly. So we pay attention to the thoughts and the intention behind and underneath the potential actions and we feed ourselves, and thus others as well, healthy food, consequently creating healthy kama. One of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment and joy and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding, knowing that we, in fact, are the owners or the heirs of our kama, and that in this knowing we can and we do actively create and fashion our life, and that the more we clearly know our motivations, our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. Understanding the law of kama and living our understanding offers us the potential experience of a sense of inner peace and a sense of well-being and wholeness. If we live in ignorance, meaning ignoring or misunderstanding the way of things. We're living in conflict, we're living in disharmony then with the way of things. 
And so we're bound to experience fear, anguish, grief, dissonance, and confusion. As this understanding takes root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. When, in fact, with everything that happens within us and around us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves. We only meet our own mind. What is there to fear? The heart, the mind, begins to relax. We begin to know that we can change our mind. We really, truly know that we're not trapped. We're not trapped running around and around on the karmic wheel. It's as though we're all artists. But instead of canvas and paint and, or clay or marble or music or pencil and pen and paper as our creative medium, it's really our very mind, body, and heart and the immediacy of our life experiences that are the materials for our creative expression. So again, one of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding, knowing that we, in fact, are the owners or the heirs of our kama. And that in knowing this, we can and we do actively create and fashion our life. And that the more clearly we know our motivations, the more clearly we know our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. The Buddha considered mental kama to be the most important and far-reaching in its effect. Because as well as mental kama being what shapes our inner reality, thought precedes all of our actions of body and speech. The flavor of our thoughts, wholesome or unwholesome, are conditioned by our intentions, our motivations. Our motivations are conditioned by our view, our understanding, with our views often showing up as our beliefs and our preferences, which are what direct our motivations, intentions, and the resultant thoughts, which then potentially flow out into words and actions. So, just simply and briefly, what does this mean? If we cling to the view, if we cling to the understanding of ourself, other beings and things, and even situations, experiences, and places as being independent, separate, and static, meaning unchanging, we're motivated by misunderstanding and ignorance. Ignorance meaning ignoring the truth of things. We're motivated by what in Buddhism, Buddhist teachings, is called wrong view. With this wrong view, 
this misunderstanding, our intentions, our motivations are coming from a self-centered and disconnected and non-harmonious, unhealthy, unwholesome place and will inevitably bring suffering to ourself and to others. If we have the understanding, if one is experientially through practice growing into the understanding that ourselves, other beings, all things, situations, experiences, and places are totally interdependent and arise only because of various causes and conditions coming together, and that in fact the causes and conditions themselves are also always in flux, that nothing, no thing, abides independently or separately or is static, is unchanging. Our intentions then, our motivations, come out of understanding the truth of the way of things. And so our thoughts and the subsequent flow of words and actions all come from a place of harmony and a lightness of being and are appropriately responsive in any given situation and consequently are beneficial in both overt and subtle ways in relationship to ourselves and in relationship to others. And from the Buddha, this is from the Anguttara Nikaya. He's speaking uh, to his uh, students, his monks and nuns. And it's about right view. Monks, yogis, when there is wrong view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama created as a result of that view, and mental kama created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations, all are productive of results that are undesirable, unpleasant, disagreeable, yielding to no benefit, but conducive to suffering. On what account? On account of that pernicious view. It's like the margosa seed or the seed of a bitter gourd planted in moist earth. The soil and water taken in his nutriment are wholly converted into a bitter taste, an acrid taste, a foul taste. Why is that? Because the seed is not good. Monks, yogis, when there is right view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama created as a result of that view, mental kama created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations, all are yielding of results that are desirable, pleasant, agreeable, producing benefit, conducive to happiness. On what account? On account of those good views. It is like a seed of the sugar cane, a seed of wheat, or a fruit seed which has been planted in moist earth. The water and soil taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into sweetness, into refreshment, into delicious taste. On what account? On account of that good seed. Thank <laughs> you.
And in relationship to this, uh, I'd like to share <coughs> a particular rendition of the precepts and refuges and precepts that was written by uh, a woman named Stephanie Kaza from Green Gulch Farm. It's a Zen, uh, Zen center. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures, the three treasures being the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Within what is an essentially impersonal karmic process, our actions are like the seeds that are planted and then transformed by the shifting patterns of our life. Some seeds are cultivated and nourished. Some seeds are dormant for many years, maybe many lifetimes. We could look at that as heredity until the exact combination of causes and conditions arise to germinate them. And always the fruit will bear a direct relationship to the seed. An obvious and clear metaphor is that apple seeds bring apples into the world. Poppy flower seeds bring poppy flowers into the world. Lettuce seeds bring lettuce into the world. A loving act at some point ends up bearing loving fruit. An angry or hateful act produces hateful fruit. And again, the Buddha's words that we began this evening with. All beings are the owners of their kama, heirs of their kama, born of their kama related to their kama, supported by their kama. Not self, impersonality behind our actions doesn't uh, discount our responsibility for the things that we do. Kama is a very powerful force 
that inevitably makes it itself felt. We need to couple our understanding of the not-self, of selflessness, with a very mindful and respectful attention to our motivations and actions and their karmic fruit. When we begin to understand more deeply that kama is based on intention, based on motivation, we begin to see the enormous and important responsibility that we have to become aware of the intentions, to become aware of the motivations that precede our actions of mind, speech, and body. If we're unaware of the motivations in our mind, when unwholesome, unskillful intentions arise, we may unmindfully act. We may unmindfully act on them and consequently then create the conditions for some immediate or future suffering. In some words from Padmasambhava, who is said to have brought the Buddhist teachings to Tibet from Bhutan. Though your vision is as vast as the sky, your attention to the law of kama should be as fine as a grain of barley flour. Mindfulness of our own intentions before we speak or act and also the awareness of the karmic fruit of our words and actions once they've been said or performed has the effect of broadening our field of choice. As we work, as we practice to purify and transform our mind, our heart, and our actions so that we're not then always running on automatic, not always running on habitual ways of thinking and speaking and acting. When we mindfully experience the effects of our actions, we see, for instance, that extending generosity, loving kindness, and compassion towards others, it comes back to us. And we see and feel the effects of approaching the world with aggression or anger or judgment or greed or grasping. An important point to consider in relationship to these teachings and practices is that it's not, this is very important actually, it's not so important where your present suffering came from, but where you take it from here. Meaning what's most important is how you approach the situation of in this moment. So a very <coughs> obvious example, <coughs> maybe not so obvious sometimes. The appropriate and healthy <coughs> and wholesome response to suffering, whatever the cause of it may be, is compassion. If we traverse this path, or as we traverse this path through our practice, we clearly begin to see and to know that there 
is a refuge, so to say. A refuge where the suffering of confusion and fear and anger, resistance, discontent, it's, it's a very long list, where this suffering can be dispelled. And that refuge is through our good deeds. Refuge from this perspective is in wholesome motivations, wholesome intentions, thoughts, words, and performing wholesome actions. And as we take this refuge, there really comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might be some current hardship in our life. And as I mentioned a couple of evenings ago, our practice itself, this incredible training of the mind and heart, is really a very good deed, the best, really, and the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in through all aspects of our life. And again, as I mentioned a little bit about the other day, or the other evening, one of the things that's very, been very important for me in understanding Kama is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions, to do good deeds. It's never too late. And so we practice this. And it becomes established in us. It becomes a refuge, and at some point we begin to really know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And in this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring but an increase of the good? As this becomes more and more certain in our mind, the heart, the mind, becomes more tranquil and more serene. And through our practice, we begin to gain the great strength of a calm, focused mind and a patient heart and the growing evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties that come up in our practice and come up in our life as a whole. As the refuge of doing good deeds becomes our way, our deeds become our friend rather than our adversary. Even if sometimes the result of our deeds seem to bring maybe some sorrow or discomfort or pain, maybe through the way others treat us or through some upheaval or turmoil in our life or maybe in some surprising or unrecognizable phenomena that maybe shows up in our practice. And sometimes the results of our good deeds might not be at all what we expected, not what we had in mind. Results maybe that are contrary to what we might think our intention, our motivation was. Many years ago, I had a therapist who would sometimes sometimes say to me, or more accurately say for me at appropriate times, this isn't what I had in mind, which would always kind of stop me in my tracks. 
and really moved me to take a look, to really take a close look at my motivations and at my expectations. And most importantly in that moment, to really simply be with what was occurring, what was actually occurring, with an open heart and as clear a mind as was possible at that time. If we make suffering our teacher, then in a sense we could say it becomes our friend. Maybe sometimes a stern and in a certain way quite a demanding teacher, yet potentially a truthful and very well-intended friend. We learn about ourselves, which seems to be in a strange way, seems to be our most difficult subject. (laughs) The teachings of Kama and the understanding uh, uh, therein can imbue us with a very powerful motivation to free ourselves from Kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again and again throw us into repeated suffering, to free ourselves in this very life from repeatedly being born, repeatedly being reborn into the realm of suffering. I'd like to read uh, a section from a book called And There Was Light by a man named Jacques Lucieron, who was involved in the French underground movement during the Second World War. And this is a section from his autobiography that really beautifully illuminates our discussion about Kama. It was a great surprise to find myself blind, and being blind was not at all as I imagined it, nor was it as the people around me seemed to think it. They told me that to be blind meant not to see, yet how was I to believe them when I saw? Not at once, I admit, not in the days immediately after the operation. For at that time I still wanted to use my eyes. I followed their usual path. I looked in the direction where I was in the habit of seeing before the accident. And there was anguish, a lack, something like a void which filled me with what grown-ups call despair. Finally one day, and it was not long in coming, I realized that I was looking in the wrong way. It was as simple as that. I was making something very like the mistake people make who change their glasses without adjusting themselves. I was looking too far off and too much on the surface of things. At this point, some instinct made me change course. I began to look more closely, not at things, but at a world closer to myself, looking from an inner place to one further within, instead of clinging to the movement of sight toward the outside, toward the world outside. Immediately, the substance of the universe drew together, redefined and peopled itself anew. I was aware of a radiance emanating from a place I knew nothing about, a place which might as well have been outside me as within. But radiance was there, or to put it more precisely, light. It was a fact, for light was there. I felt indescribable relief and a happiness so great it almost made me laugh. Confidence and gratitude came as if a prayer had been answered. 
I found light and joy at the same moment. And I can say without hesitation that from that time on, light and joy have never been separated in my experience. I have had them or lost them together. I saw light and went on seeing it, though I was blind. I said so, but for many years I did not say it very loud. Until I was nearly 14, I remember calling the experience which kept renewing itself inside me my secret and speaking of it only to my most intimate friends. I don't know whether they believe me, but they listened to me, for they were my friends. And what I told them had a greater value than being merely true. It had the value of being beautiful, a dream, an enchantment, almost like magic. The amazing thing that this was not magic for me at all, but reality. I could no more have denied it than people with eyes can deny that they see. I was not light myself, I knew that, but I bathed in it as an element which blindness had suddenly brought much closer. I could feel light rising, spreading, resting on objects, giving them form, then leaving them. Withdrawing or diminishing is what I mean, for the opposite of light was never present. Sighted people always talk about the night of blindness, and that seems to them quite natural. But there is no such night, for at every waking hour and even in my dreams I lived in a stream of light. Without my eyes, light was much more stable than it had been with them. As I remember it, there were no longer the same differences between things lighted brightly, less brightly, or not at all. I saw the whole world in light, existing through it and because of it. Still, there were times when the light faded, almost to the point of disappearing. It happened every time I was afraid. If instead of letting myself be carried along by confidence and throwing myself into things, I hesitated, calculated, thought about the wall, the half-open door, the key in the lock, If I said to myself that all these things were hostile and about to strike or scratch, then, without exception, I hit or wounded myself. The only easy way to move around the house, the garden, or the beach was by not thinking about it at all, or thinking as little as possible. Then I moved between obstacles, the way they say bats do. What the loss of my eyes had not accomplished was brought about by fear. It made me blind. Anger and impatience had the same effect, throwing everything into confusion. The minute before, I knew just where everything in the room was, but if I got angry, things got angrier than I. They went and hid in the most unlikely corners, mixed themselves up, turned turtle, and muttered like crazy men and looked wild. As for me, I no longer knew where to put hand or foot. Everything hurt me. This mechanism worked so well, I became cautious. When I was playing with my small companions, if I suddenly grew anxious to win, to be first at all costs, then all at once I could see nothing. Literally, I went into fog or smoke. I could no longer afford to be jealous or unfriendly, because as soon as I was, a bandage came down over my eyes, and I was bound hand and foot and cast aside. All at once a black hole opened and I was helpless inside it. But when I was happy and serene, approached people with confidence and thought well of them, I was rewarded with light. So is it surprising that I loved friendship and harmony 
when I was very young. I always knew where the road was open and where it was closed. I had only to look at the bright signal which taught me how to live. All of us, whether blind or not, are terribly greedy. We want things only for ourselves. Even without realizing it, we want the universe to be like us and give us all the room in it. But a blind child learns very quickly that this cannot be. He has to learn it, for every time he forgets that he's not alone in the world, he strikes against an object, hurts himself, and is called to order. But each time he remembers, he's rewarded, for everything comes his way. And closing this evening's talk with some words from the Buddha. One should reflect repeatedly on one's own mind in this way. For a long time, the sanctity or purity of this mind has been destroyed by greed, by hatred, and by delusion. It is by mental defilement that beings are defiled. It is by mental purification that beings are purified. All conditions have mind as forerunner, mind as master, are accomplished by mind. Whatever one says or does with an unclear mind brings suffering in its wake, just as the cartwheel follows the ox's hoof. Whatever one says or does with a clear mind brings happiness in its wake, just as the shadow follows its owner. And let's just sit silently for a couple of moments. (laughs) 